Hello. Yo. <laughs> Long time no see. Um, so for those of you who haven't, uh, go ahead and check out the first two parts of this conversation. Um, uh, you can find those uh, wherever the fuck you find this episode. Um, uh, but yeah, this is a continuation with my homie from Brazil, um, talking about the problems of capitalism, neoliberalism, um, and you know, the symptoms that those create in places like Brazil. Um, so yeah, we're continuing a conversation. We've discussed a few different things, uh, including, uh, my friend here's history in organizing and kind of how they came to, um, you know, uh, that practice. And then also we have discussed in length um, the history in some extent of the kind of neoliberal takeover, the capitalist takeover of Brazil. Um, it's kind of um, patterns uh, that it is uh, practicing now and also kind of what the contemporary problems uh, that people are organizing around and struggling for. Um, but yeah, we're going to just go ahead and continue in this conversation. Um, so if I can figure out where the hell my email to you went, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can ask the next question. Oh, here we are. Okay. Yeah, so we were finishing on the last one talking about kind of like the theoretical necessity for a violent revolution, right? Um, and so I wanted to connect this to one huge movement which is going on right now uh, in Brazil, and that is the indigenous struggle. Um, so I wanted to ask you uh, what it is that you know about uh, kind of what's going on with the indigenous people in Brazil at the moment. And maybe if you could give a little connection to how this fits in with the larger struggle of the uh, indigenous people uh, in Brazil uh, and, and kind of maybe even talk about just in brief, if you can, kind of Brazilian uh, colonialism, because that's, that's something that I feel a lot of people don't recognize is a lot of countries in the global south also had their own version of colonial history and we are you know completely cheating ourselves of uh incredible mm -hmm. necessary knowledge if we don't discuss and learn about these histories so if you wouldn't mind answering those questions my friend um i'd love to hear from you yeah sure uh one of the things that gets uh, that got quite clear in our previous episodes and the previous talk we're, we're having is that capitalism can only sustain itself by colonizing and oppressing and exploiting different regions uh, in the world. So the, the way capitalism began and, and appeared in history was in the time of colonialism and it has maintained that colonialism until today, even though it's not as clear as before, there has been a sort of whitewashing of the, 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 the way colonialism itself works. But 
in the global south there has never been independency there has never been uh, complete autonomous sovereignty etc and the global south works as a colony that helps keep the good life standards of people in the central countries in the global north that is and but but, but capitalism as a social system it works as a fractal so those huge structures of colonialism from the central countries to the global peripheries the south, global south also help happens inside countries and you whatever the fuck you come from whatever country you come from you can look inside your country and see the huge regional differences that play a part in the history and the modernity and current status of your country and how some regions uh, as well as some people will be quote-unquote internal colonies that help keep other regions better uh, in in american countries that and then by america i mean the continent not the united states which is a specific country but anyways uh, in the american continent that often happens by the oppression of the native people to the american continent the original peoples that lived here and that have survived the massive genocide, that's the biggest genocide in the history of humanity, thank you very much, capitalism, uh, that was the indigenous people's genocide. And even though different countries had different ways to, to dealing with that, in some countries the genocide was more quote-unquote complete, as in, for example, Canada, West, uh, Argentina, Uruguay, Chile, countries where the, the majority of the population don't see themselves as, as uh, continuators, in, in, inheritance, I forgot the word in English, but you get what I mean, uh, yeah. of the indigenous bloods, indigenous cultures, etc. And in other countries like, say, Mexico, uh, Peru, Bolivia, Paraguay, people feel themselves as much more to be a continuation of the indigenous uh, people's uh, and their culture. Uh, however, all, all countries have those sort of uh, internal colonialism role, uh, but very, very material, very economic, very social division between the more Europeanized people who live way better in all American countries and the indigenous people who have way more difficult lives, way conditions of living. And Brazil sits between both those extremes, uh, which I just mentioned. It, it is a country with deep uh, roots in indigenous history, even though there's many people in different countries, because we're fucking huge, we're the largest nation in, in the country. But anyways, uh, different regions and different people see themselves as more as a part of the indigenous culture and legacy. And so that's different degrees. And usually the ones that uh, claim to be descendants of indigenous peoples or have been 100% a, a continuation of those peoples from 
ever, ever since the, the, the Portuguese arrived on the, the Brazilian shores, uh, they usually have the worst part in it. They're the most exploited. They live in very difficult conditions, not because they're culturally backwards, not because they want to be that way, but because capitalism uh, uses them as an internal calling, them uh, exploited and give a, a better condition of living to the quote-unquote more European peoples here. So, uh, the Brazilian indigenous people have had a hard time for the last 500 years, of, but ever since the redemocratization of Brazil, our military dictatorship, uh, we've had a new constitution with a lot of social rights, a sort of welfare state that was very nice and gave the indigenous people the right to have their land recognized by the state and protected by the Brazilian state. Uh, so have many different social groups, ethnic groups have been fighting to get their lands recognized. Some had it easy, some had it very difficultly, some still have not been recognized, uh, haven't got sovereignty over their lands to this day. Uh, it's been a constant struggle for the last 40 years uh, for different ethnic groups, sometimes uh, they work together, sometimes they work alone to get land recognized as theirs, land they have been leaving fucking millennia. Uh, it is like, oh no, but I, I know this guy who bought those land 80 years ago. He bought from the Brazilian state, so I'll recognize him, a huge landowner who's already the owner of, I don't know, half this the area of this state and plants a lot of soybeans. Uh, so yeah, favoritism to the bourgeoisie, to the land barons, agrarian landlords, etc. But yeah, the indigenous people have been some more difficultly, some more easily have been during their struggle and many of them had their lands recognized. Now there's a law project as we call it here uh, a new proposition of law here, a change in the constitution that basically, uh, instead of making it easier or more difficult for indigenous people to get their lands recognized, it changes the game entirely. Basically, removes the legal protections of the Brazilian state to those and makes indigenous people have to take care of themselves and allows for landlords to get inside the indigenous lands because the indigenous people here have been the greatest expanders of forests. They have a social uh, way of life that expands forests instead of destroying them, precisely the inverse of capitalist uh, social structure. Uh, so yeah, this new law allows for barons who own huge amounts of land to plant soybeans and other commodities uh, indigenous lands and not be charged by the Brazilian state, not be shot at by the Brazilian environmental police. Uh, basically nothing will happen to them. This got the basically all of the peoples of Brazil that uh, 
brought all of them united because if you have land you're under threat if you do not have land it will not matter if you or not have in the future if you gain your cause and gain your land against the government well on the government you know because the landlord murder you probably literally so uh, ever since the the protests started here in Brazil against Bolsonaro, against towards the impeachment, against the quote unquote mismanagement that was a planned management of the pandemic and etc., the indigenous peoples have those protests bringing about their topics. That uh, the the cancellation of this project of of new law of changing the constitution, uh, the preservation of indigenous and cultures, etc., and they've been doing a lot of protests parallel to us in different days. But they've also joined um, the the pro impeachment protests uh, massively, massively in, in the whole country. Many of them have gone all the way to Brasilia, and Brasilia is far away from from most indigenous lands. Uh, so they've Many of them have walked there uh, and they're protesting day after day in front of the, the Congress and the House of Ministers, etc., uh, against that law and in defense of their culture, their land, their sovereignty, etc. Uh, and that has not gone Pacific, hasn't gone easy because they've been there changing, uh, doing their traditional music, chants, uh, dances, etc., very peacefully. But uh, the, the state simply threw, as we say, the police against them. They've been shot with rubber bullets, uh, massacred by uh, police batons, the, the cavalry. They've sent the horses against the, the Indians. Come on. Uh, and they've decided to fight back. So if, if we're going to try a peaceful protest and the government is going to show and, and use the, the most, uh, the, the hardest methods of police repression we have, we cannot simply stay uh, silent and, you know, get beaten and shut up. Uh, we should fight back. And they've started blocking uh, roadways throughout the country. Brazil, like the US, depends heavily on, on road transportation, trucks. So they've literally gone to huge um, roads, interstate roads, you know, blocked them, set, uh, made barricades, set them ablaze. Uh, they fought back the police. There's an awesome picture of this one police guy who got shot by an arrow. <laughs> in the knee, just like Skyrim. Um, you know, the, the peaceful protests got them where, and now that they're fighting back the police and bringing about uh, violence to the violence, bringing about resistance and fighting back, now they're starting to be heard. Now the, 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 the law is really being talked about on being cancelled by the ministers etc and before it wasn't when they were doing peaceful protests they were simply being ignored 
So violence in self-defense really gets people and then the, the struggle to advance. That is That's a very, very crucial point. Um, so a few things I wanted to say with this. First and foremost, um, we as non-native people um, have a duty and a need to study and learn from indigenous people all over the world. Because like you said, for a millennia or more, um, they have been tending to the land, to each other, um, and to, you know, the idea that this earth is what gives us life and therefore we have to keep it in a certain way so that generation after generation they can live the same decent, happy life as we were granted. Um, I mentioned, I believe, in the last episode, a book I just read. It's actually right here, so I can read the name off because I think it's something that people should read. It's called uh, To Become a Human Being. It was written by Steve Wall. It's the message of the Tadadoho uh, Chief Leon Shenandoah, and I apologize for my pretty obvious uh, <laughs> uh, uh, poor enunciation of that word, but um, fantastic work um, really puts forward a lot of uh, the, the stories uh, and the history of uh, indigenous people, uh, not only here in um, the Onondaga region uh, where Leon Shenandoah uh, was um but just the indigenous struggle in general against colonialism both here in the united states and elsewhere and that was an incredible text um there's a few more which have you know especially specific narration of the north american struggle but obviously mention and touch upon different struggles such as the palestinian struggle the struggle in south africa um, and a lot of other struggles, such as struggles in Latin America for oppressed people's rights, for indigenous people's rights. Um, those books are Our History is the Future um, by Nick Estes. And also another great one is The Red Nation by Common Notions and mm -hmm. um, the, Red, uh, the Red Nation. And um, <clears throat> I think that it's very clear that across the world, um, indigenous peoples are getting to the climax of true resistance. And they have been resisting for 500 years, at least here in the United States, in North America, it's been 500 years. Um, I'm honest, honestly uh, not too well aware of the indigenous struggles across the world in much depth so i can't put a year stamp on it but i do know it's equally as long if not longer um and and i think that it's clear that the indigenous path of life right and how they tend to the land how they sustain themselves 
how they live communally, how they tend to one another is something to be admired and not only admired, but studied and mirrored because they have been able to live through the most brutal oppression for centuries and been able to do it in a way that was not reactionary, was not for the sake of for the sake of revenge, but for the sake of resistance, uh, resisting colonial oppression, not allowing the destruction of Mother Earth, not allowing the um, destruction of human beings, um, of the land, of the water, of the air, um, consistently fighting uh, like no one else has uh, for the sanctity of the land that and the earth that we live on. Um, and the last point I really just wanted to connect is that kind of this path of uh, um, more nonviolent uh, struggle, which led to more violent resistance, um, mm-hmm. is quite very similar to a lengthy history of the... North American, including, um, you know, what we consider the United States and Canada, so Turtle Island. Um, Mm -hmm. We have a very similar history wherein the original colonizers um, and settlers came in and especially in the United States began signing treaties with different nations and the nations that they didn't sign treaties with they either tried to somehow or another form uh, economic or uh, social ties with them, or they would massacre them, Um, Mm -hmm. or they would send them to massacre another group of indigenous people. Um, And so they tried, they also tried to enslave them as they ended up enslaving Africans. Um, Same here. Yep, yep. It's it's incredible the parallel. Um and you had early years of resistance wherein you know, and in this book how to be a human being, it's very clear this this need to share the earth with <clears throat> all human beings being very central to the belief of the indigenous peoples because you know, in when the early colonizers and settlers came they did not they were not met with by warriors and by uh war you know uh brutal violence they were met with gifts they were met with acceptance they were met with gratitude and community and that is something so foreign to these european powers that someone like christopher columbus wrote in his diaries about how how easy it would be to enslave the people of the Caribbean because of how generous they were. Columbus was a monster. Yes, amongst many. Um, Cortez wrote very similar stories uh, in his travels, as did, um, oh, it starts with a P. Um, but also I would imagine, yeah. the yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would imagine also the um, Portuguese and the early colonizers uh, in, in Latin America had very similar diaries and very 
similar, you know, discussions about the indigenous peoples there. And I think that it ultimately shows the concrete decision by the ruling classes in Europe, which eventually became the, the ruling classes everywhere through years and years of oppression, suppression, um, coercion, corruption, etc. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you really begin to see a complete absorption of indigenous culture, not in a way that was to bring it into the fold and make it a part of the overall community, but to absorb it within settler society and ultimately swallow and erase it. Um, And you see, uh, especially now with the uncovering of the uh, mass graves in uh, Canada and, uh, you know, the probable um, uncovering to come in the United States, uh, there's a very popular... Uh, phrase which is dirty and I'm not a fan of saying it but it is um, kill the Indian save the man um, which like is they're the, not man exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. um, ultimately dehumanizing what it is to be indigenous erasing uh, thousands of years of true humanity true stewardship and true uh, communal and collective livelihood uh, for these individualistic, uh, self-sustaining, self-indulging uh, uh, colonial uh, practices. But um, that kind of brings us to the article that you shared with me today that was titled um, The Brazilian Age, The Brazilianization mm-hmm. of the World. Um, that was a really, really interesting article. And I, I would have never found that. Um, so it's really cool that you shared that with me. Um, so let I just want to kind of do a little discussion of the article and kind of some of the ideas in it. But um, what did the article ultimately seem to mean to get across? Well, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, first and foremost, I would like to tell the the, the audience to really search for that article if you can add the link in the description of the episode so that people can read it more easily it's it can be found on the american library let me get the 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 link's name real quick here um i'm pulling it up on my phone as well same it is from americanaffairsjournal.org yes sorry didn't mean to speak over you (laughs) <laughs> I did the same, it's fine. So yeah, uh, it's written by a Brazilian sociologist. I didn't know him, I didn't uh, know his name, didn't recognize it, but the article is so awesome. It's such a great social analysis. And uh, it brings about the, the, the thought, as we were talking in previous episodes and earlier today, that uh, the same way <clears throat> uh, capitalism has began with colonialism, uh, Well, even before that, there's a point I want to make clear. Capitalism was the first social system in the history of humanity that 
has a need of universalization and constant growth um, ever <laughs> to ever appear. So when we study uh, feudalism, when we study the ancient world, when we study uh, quote unquote prehistorical societies, uh, indigenous societies, you always would see huge differences in the social organization, albeit so some common elements here and there from common systems, none of them had the need of constant expansion as capitalism does. That it's not a coincidence that capitalism appeared right in the period of colonization, because colonialism was the principle of capitalism. And as capitalism developed from mercantilism, as we call it, and colonialism, it has kept on this need of constant expansion, reaching new quote unquote borders until it became universal, so that every country is capitalist and the countries that are not who wants to try a different mean of, of, of a different way of living have to be destroyed made capitalist so that they can be exploited and when those countries uh, with different ways of organizing uh, those nations, not necessarily countries, we are talking about indigenous peoples too, so they're nations without countries uh, that have different means to be organized, they have to be destroyed, made capitalist, universalized under the, the, the Western capitalist way of life, way of viewing society, uh, cisgender normativity, uh, racialization, which sees the quote-unquote white race uh, as superior, uh, the man as superior, etc. All those things we live under capitalism, they have to be universalized in order for capitalism to work. And, of course, along the development of, of history, many different aspects of society change, many different uh, models of organizing within capitalism have happened. We've had neoliberalism, we've had welfare states, uh, we've had uh, the, the roaring 20s and the huge uh, union struggles in the United States in the 30s and 40s. You know, uh, many different ways of organizing the change from period to period. But all of them have a sense of universalization. Right now, we're living the neoliberal era, quote unquote neoliberal era. And neoliberalism started out, for those who don't know, in Chile. Chile had a welfare state that was threatened by socialism by a democratically elected government uh, through the people's struggle, defending the popular power, defending a democratic transition to socialism, the Chilean way of socialism that was Salvador Allende's uh, government. And that government was literally destroyed, killed, bombed by the Chilean military backed by the United States. Chile was already living a a blockade by the United States, just like Cuba is, li is living today and for the last 70 years. Come on, end the blockade, Cuba, let's take a breath. Anyways, um, oh yeah, 
So yeah, uh, Chile became a military dictatorship and neoliberalism, which was just theoretical, mostly in the Chicago School of Economics, uh, it was put to practice for the first time in Chile. Since Chile was already living in a time of dictatorship, there could be to bring about a critique to the social system in a country like that. And Chile was used as a laboratory liberalism and when it worked it was it spread to the world so you, you see margaret thatcher uh, ronald reagan in britain and the united states and many other uh, figures defending the neoliberal ideology that's the end of history there's no alternative uh, socialism is completely unviable etc uh, capitalism is universal uh, there's no way of doing things outside of, of capitalism and uh, outside of that ideology, the, the, the whole way of structuring the, the class struggle within countries, uh, structuring the economics, of course, keeping capitalism and its core uh, intact, but in a whole new way of exploiting people. And that article, uh, the Brazilianization of the world, uh, agrees with a theory I've been studying more recently, uh, which is Brazil right very now with its liberal slash fascist alternation of government and policies is being the new laboratory for a social way of structuring life within capitalism that if, if uh, this... Uh, liberal fascism here in Brazil succeeds, it's going to spread to the world. And this article shows so clearly, so well-wordedly, so, uh, you know, well, well shown that it's already happening right there now. Those, the, the social structure of Brazilian capitalism and many of its characteristics that used to be specific to Brazil, like I said in the first episode of our discussion, the way Brazil is structured as islands of development, islands that are just like Belgium, which are mostly the capital cities, the big cities, the places where there are universities and huge industries that are connected to, the, to global capitalism, you know, and sort of developed in their way and uh, a notion of poverty, misery, exploitation in its most cruel ways possible, disgrace, and, you know, which is like India. So, uh, Belindia, in a way, Belgium and India, that's, way, that's the way Brazil works. Uh, I've talked more about that in the first episode. Go check it out if you haven't. Go check the article, please. But yeah, it expands that to the whole world. And the way you see the, the, the growing divide between the, the poor classes and the wealthy elite that lives very well, the clear divide that you see from regions within countries, the, the, the rampant corruption, bureaucratization, uh, technocratization in a way that you have technocrats around the state. The state is always told that it needs to be efficiently administered not 
uh, no social rights should be given, etc. It's a continuation of liberalism, but with a, a technocratic way of seeing things. That uh, th those specificities of Brazilian capitalism are starting to be universalized, and then you can see many uh, fascism, liberalism, dualities take place. Uh, take place in many different countries in the world today, where uh, there comes a fascist government, for, a, for example, so Bolsonaro's, and any social movement gets no say in anything. The left is completely nullified, so everyone's standards of things, goals, aspirations, what to fight for, are so, so lowered that anything from the left is completely seen as unviable, impossible, impractical, and no can do, you know? And the only alternative to fascism is liberalism, which used to be something from the right. I talked about how liberalism in Brazil is something from the right, not from the left as in the US, but even the, 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 the welfare state policies of the American, uh, the, the Yankee left in the United States, uh, they're going to be completely destroyed in order for the only duality possible is fascism or neoliberalism. There's no alternative. That, that's the, the, the new universalization capitalism is bringing about. And Brazil is being the laboratory to that. So if we can destroy that, that experiment here, uh, bring about, again, the defense of socialism, the hope in the future that we talked about in previous episodes, um, the, the goal of socialism and the popular masses, and we can break away from this duality of fascism and neoliberalism all the time, we can show the world that this experiment won't work and a new thing will have to be tried out. But if we fail, if either fascism or neoliberalism uh, keep their domain here and are never ever contested that any minimum social welfare uh, policies are completely halted because fascism is coming, so we should not give any opportunity for it. Uh, they're gonna... Uh, make a coup d'etat, start a military dictatorship, you know, that kind of thing. Like the fear you had from Trump when he lost the election, that's the fear we're having from uh, Bolsonaro in the next elections here. That's, that's going to be a pattern in global capitalism. You're either fearing a fascist state or living neoliberalism. And whenever one is uh, losing its grip, the other comes along. If you complain too much about neoliberalism, fascism is going to come. And if you start complaining about, new, uh, about fascism, it's either going to close the regime even further or it's going to open to neoliberalism. Dot. No welfare state, no improvement of the conditions of life, no seeing any possible different future. No way. That's only those two. And rampant inequality... Uh, you know, starvation, that kind of thing happening, even in the central countries. That's what the article brings about. Please read the article.
Yes, it, it was a great article. I do advise that anybody listening to this <clears throat> do check it out. Um, one thing that you brought up that I think is very prominent, and I think we're seeing this all across the world, is the concentration, of course, as we know, capitalism has it in its, its uh, very cycle. But the very concentration, even to the smallest magnitude of within one's own nation, of the colonization and the oppression of the working masses, again, within, you know, the, the central nation state. Because as we know, when Marx and Engels were originally writing about capitalism, a lot of their focus was mainly in Manchester, as this was the most advanced capitalist uh, place on the planet. Um, however, Marx did plan on writing quite extensively uh, on other things, but he unfortunately had passed away and Engels was tasked with taking his notes and trying to make works out of them. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, at this time... <laughs> yeah, yeah, very difficult. I couldn't even imagine. That'd be so stressful. Um, mm-hmm. But at the time, you had a study of the working class and the ruling class within, usually, nation states. You know, you had the oppressed workers be of the same, uh, quote-unquote, be of the same nationality as the bourgeoisie. Um, whereas, you know, soon after that, and even at that time, to, many, to much extent, um, the real oppressed masses were not contained within the nation state wherein the capitalist benefits were coming to. Um, It was within uh, the global peripheries. um, And this caused, you know, massive amounts of exploitation and oppression, which people within uh, capitalist states uh, really don't have a perspective of and really uh, disclude and leave out every time we talk about socialism and communism uh, because, you know, they take to some extent the Nordic model to be a viable option at all. Uh, and it's really a joke um, because it's just not, it's not possible. Um, but my ultimate point was just the fact that, like, this article really got across quite well that the world has been colonized. I mean, they're trying to go to fucking Mars. Like, the world has been colonized over and over, and there's only so much colonization you can do that now capitalism is yet again attacking its very centers. Any worker whatsoever, any, you know, non-bourgeois member whatsoever, and tearing apart any and all social welfare and benefits that the capitalist system ever allowed for the working masses. Um, And we've mentioned fascism and neoliberalism quite a lot. I was listening to a podcast today. Um, I think that, I think that um, it really covered quite well the theory of, I don't know if you know who George Jackson is, can't remember. He Told was me a, about him. He was a black liberationist. Um, I am actually not quite uh, caught up on his history. I, I honestly can't even place him 
in a time period. I believe he was the mid 1900s. But he was a prisoner. He was a, uh, I should say he was a imprisoned person. Um, He was a Marxist and ultimately he was a uh, anti-capitalist and anti-fascist. And he came to an analysis of fascism using uh, folks like Gramsci, uh, Clara Zetkin, and others, as well as um, as as well as black liberationists, and connecting it to an overall world historic um, practice. And his analysis of fascism was quite adept, and he connected most specifically the the need for because Fasci- fascism comes in many forms and I think that ultimately mm-hmm. when we try to say this is fascism and everything else isn't, we really don't understand phenomenon. Um, we don't understand how context works. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that is quite central to fascism is emerging of the state and the corporations. Um, yeah. And it's, that's why oftentimes fascism is called capitalism in decay, because the states mm-hmm. are coming in to save the corporations. Um, and to destroy social movements. That is very exactly, important as well. Exactly. And it, it comes in to reinforce private property rights. It comes in to reinforce capitalist hegemony, um, because ultimately, as we know, Fascism masks itself as a workers' movement. Um, mm-hmm. It connects and uses the rhetoric of socialists and anarchists everywhere, and it ultimately advocates for, in a lot of cases, uh, nationalism. Um, yeah. If if you folks don't know, uh, and you too, my friend, check out uh, Luna Oi's video on nationalism, where she describes. Nationalism I've ever seen. Check it out. Very good one. It it she describes the difference between bourgeois nationalism and uh, the nationalism of oppressed nations, such as Vietnam, which is where she's from, which is really cool because Vietnam's history is really important, and we should all learn it. Um, but my ultimate point is that fascism, capitalism, and neoliberalism are quite directly connected in a dialectical relationship wherein oftentimes mm-hmm. fascism is called capitalism in decay. Neoliberalism is called passive fascism. Um, mm-hmm. And fascism is neoliberalism with what we might hear called, quote-unquote, authoritarianism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, usually, uh, ethnocentrism and a lot of um, uh, um, ze- oh geez, I can't think of the word now myself, but ultimately uh, an attempt at erasing racial or cultural groups for the sake of creating an ultranational state and people who reign supreme. Um, that is what's called an exceptional exceptionalist belief. And it's something that mm-hmm. America holds quite dear. Um, yep. But before I continue rambling, 
Um, I want to ask you the next question, which is um, why have these, and this is a, you know, obviously a very hard question, but why is it my friend that you and your analysis and your studies feel that these issues, the broad issues, which we have discussed to this point, have not only come to Brazil, but as the article suggests, are now ultimately now spreading to the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's, it's broad, it's difficult. I'm not a sociologist, I'm a geologist, I study rocks. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I have this like as a Marxist, as any Marx, good Marxist out there for studying society and trying to, you know, see how society works in a scientific, scientific perspective. So before that, I would like to also make a recommendation. You made a nice uh, suggestion for people to see Luna Oi's video on nationalism. I will also recommend that you see Kay and Skittles, that's the name of the, the channel, video on quote unquote, the function of fascism. That's awesome. It's a great video. I have subtitled it to Portuguese uh, back when YouTube had uh, public means of people doing subtitles, you know. But anyways, I I also recommend the reading that that video talks about uh, Umberto Ecos. Umberto Ecos, he's a, I think he's Brazilian, not Portuguese, but I could be wrong. Uh, sociologist that studies fascism and he has this book Ur Fascism or the Eternal Fascism and, and you know the cycled common elements within fascism it's really great but addressing your question directly uh, as we were saying before capitalism is the first social system that has this need to be universal this need to be everywhere and constantly expanding. But that comes with crisis. Uh, Marx 200 years ago analyzed how uh, capitalism was driven by cycles of accumulation and then a limit came, uh, be it by overproduction or by over uh, other, other symptoms, you know, that bring about crises. But crises are very, uh, recurrent, you know, they, they happen time and time again in capitalism and they serve to two purposes. First, to concentrate even more wealth. See, for example, how many uh, small companies in this COVID crisis period have um, gone bankrupt, you know, and big companies buy them. So the big companies have not been affected. The number of billionaires in the world has gone much bigger in brazil we have like 20 i might be mistaken could be more but i think it's 20 new billionaires in brazil uh because they've all bought small businesses uh and prices serve to that purpose very well to concentrate wealth heavily and second to to bring about a new cycle of accumulation, new, a new organization, especially when there are global crises, like the one we're living now, they serve to reorganize the way uh, capitalism works, uh, fix the, the mistakes in ideology, bring ideas back in place, 
fix the, the, the social system in a new way so that capitalism can keep its cycle of accumulation, exploitation, eternal growth, and enrichment of people who are already wealthy as fuck. All right. Uh, this neoliberal era might, and I, I'm not a sociologist, and I've read many different articles, many different opinions. So I say might because I'm not unsure, I'm not sure myself that the neoliberal era we've been living in the past 40 years might be over because neoliberalism is not working anymore. It's not giving the people the answer. Social unrest uh, is rampant. People are starting to see the problems in society are starting to try to find a way out of neoliberalism. And capitalism has to reorganize itself, fix the ideology so it can blind people once again because people are, uh, you know, taking off the, 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 the blinding uh, that ideology is because neoliberalism failed. And uh, capitalism will reorganize itself in a new economic cycle to keep on exploitation and to keep on its ideology until it collapses again in the next 40 years. I don't know, it could be more time, could be less time. And it has to reorganize itself again and reorganize its ideology once again and repeat and repeat and repeat. If we take our, our I forgot the word, basically the, the thing you put in your eyes so that you go blind, the, the cover. The blinders. Uh, that's like, the blinders, thank you. If we take our blinders only in periods of crisis and put them back on with a new color, say our neoliberal blinders were black, and then now we're going to have a green blinder for this new period of accumulation, we're not fixing anything. We're not going beyond capitalism. We're buying a new form of ideology that keeps things all the same. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's it. Capitalism has been doing that for the past 200, probably even more, 300 years. And it's still going to do that time and time again until it's killed by a socialist revolution in every place out there in the world. And I think long live the people's struggles. Goddamn right. Long live the people's struggle. Um, that's why this show's called In Defense of Liberation. I mean, it's right there in the t- title. You know, that's what we're about. Um, but... I think, you know, and I want to just deviate real quick from our our last question. We have a few minutes, so I just want to mention this really quick. Um, this, This weird phenomenon happens where we forget really that philosophy is a science. And that's, you know, because years and years of all kinds of practices eliminated that conception. Um... But the reason why it's a science is because ultimately each new philosophy is a hypothesis, right? And then that Mm -hmm. hypothesis is tested in a lab, which is society. Um, And it, it, you know, depending on its success rate, that will show itself in how much strength it carries across the world, how many people subscribe to certain beliefs um, and and use it to concentrate control. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that we see definitely that it is possible to change the world. 
it, it, nobody can say that it's impossible to change the world because the world has changed hundreds of times. Um, it is not Im- exactly. It is not a static being. And I think we, we can't allow ourselves to be bogged down by that belief. Albeit, you know, we are up against the wall, especially with climate change and all the problems in the environment. But I think if we are true Marxists, we understand that this also heightens the contradictions and brings the people's need for unity and their consciousness uh, higher and and together in a way that uh, the previous, you know, era could not. But the last Mm -hmm. question I wanted to ask you is, and this is like, you know, we'll (laughs) do your best in the few minutes that we have, of course, but... (laughs) How has neoliberalism and fascism destroyed the majority of not only the global South, but now even uh, as it comes to destroy the, quote, developed capitalist nations? Is this something that can be fixed within the system? The short answer, since we have little time, is no. Thank you for the participation in this episode. Goodbye. (laughs) 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 Yeah, right. So whenever crises appear, as I have said, uh, the tendency, the movement that capitalism does is accumulate more wealth, be it big companies, buy enough the bankrupt small companies uh, and concentrating even more wealth, making more billionaires and killing the mid-class, killing the small businesses, the small companies. That also happens within, since capitalism is a huge fractal, as I've said, that happens on the infra-nation, inside the nations, that also happens on global scale. So see Europe, for example, uh, until until the 2008 crisis, uh, most of the European Union used to be very well of very developed had great uh, welfare state uh you know life was great there uh of course feeding off the colonies in the global south uh feeding off the the exploitation of the ex-soviet countries the eastern bloc that had recently just been destroyed etc but when the 2008 crisis appeared they had to even inside the european union destroy some countries, that is the pigs, Portugal, Ireland, Greece, Italy, some parts of Italy, South Italy mostly, Spain, to save the central core nations that control the euro, that is Germany and France. So it's going to happen again every time a new crisis appear. There's no way outside of capitalism, capital, sorry, there's no way out inside capitalism. Capitalism always uh, needs to colonize someone, and when crises appear, they're going to concentrate wealth even more and destroy whoever it is that needs to be destroyed in order to save capitalism and save the very few rich people out there. The fewest, the best. Even if they need to, you know, send the world's bourgeoisie to Mars and exploit the whole of the Earth, they're going to do that. That's, that's the tendency of capitalism. Don't. Uh, it's so real and frustrating sometimes, but it's why we struggle. Thank you so much, my friend, for coming on the show. It's really meant a lot. Thank you for recording. Uh, for those of you who are listening to this, we did this in three hours time. We recorded these three episodes. <laughs> so this was a great in conversation. A thank you Pazole. for coming. Yes. Thank you. Thank you again, my friend. Thank you so much. 
it's I thanking you, mate. Uh, let's do this more often and, and some other time. Yeah, Definitely. thank you everyone who listened. Goodbye and long live the people who struggle, defend the southern nations against imperialism, defend the indigenous people's movements against imperialism. Let's destroy fascism together with the people's organization and defending socialism. Goodbye. Woo!